0: Yes, you can email the show, aliveandkicking at newstalk.com, or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up, Dr. Owen Gallivan on the psychology of why we are slow to move on the climate crisis, and political correspondent and author Eva Moore on being trolled and the impact it had on her mental health. So, what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I've been great this week, actually. I had the most gorgeous break in Leitrim for three nights with my female in-laws and really did recharge the batteries. We stayed in Drumherney Hideaway and there are all these lodges that are just surrounded by trees. So to wake up to that and sit on the decking with a morning cuppa and we'd end every day, our days were packed with hikes and swims around Sligo and we'd come back for dinner to the fire pit at the house and to end the day gathered around that in the trees outside under the stars. I mean, I've always known that getting out into nature works for me. It works for everyone. But I did get a mighty whack of the power of it last weekend. And I'd also forgotten the importance of getting out of our heads and into our bodies. We spend, and I certainly spend, a lot of time up in our heads thinking about the to-do list, yap, yap, yapping away to ourselves about what we could be doing, should be doing, didn't do. And because of the modern age, we're taking in constant streams of information from our work, from our WhatsApp groups, our emails, our podcasts, our scrolling. Our heads can become completely overcrowded. So to get back into the body, you can do mindfulness meditation literally focusing on your feet on the ground your bum on the chair you do a full body scan almost from head to toe but to move the body does it really well and walking is amazing for it and as we were heading up the hills in Sligo and around the forest walk looking at Ben and it's after that you're not thinking about all the stuff you were before um So that was that for me last weekend, floating around, well-being sanctuaries, hiking, sea swimming and really coming back to myself. I didn't really need necessarily to go all the way to Leitrim for it, although it's somewhere I would recommend. Most of what we need is on our doorstep every single day. It's just about taking the time to prioritise, getting out of our heads and into our bodies. And speaking of that, I listened to an absolutely mind blowing podcast with Dr. Joe Dispenza on Diary of a CEO and Dr. Joe Dispenza travels the world researching and talking about the power of the mind and the importance of meditation, changing our inner world to change our outer world. So I've been doing his meditations that I found on YouTube In the mornings, he focuses a lot on coming into the body and then asking ourselves, how do we want to be in that day? And is there anything we would like to change, bringing that conscious awareness to our lives as opposed to walking around on autopilot? And I think sometimes we dismiss wellness practices as woo woo and something we don't really have time for. But then we disregard the science behind the tools that we need to survive and thrive in the modern world. And so many of them are so simple. You can email the show, aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, Dr. Owen Gallivan is the chair of the Psychological Society of Ireland's special interest group on addressing the climate and environmental emergency, taking a look at why we as a society are still not taking the drastic action required to reverse climate change. He joins me on the line now. Owen, you're very welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Claire.
0: Tell us a little bit about combining these two areas of interest your obvious professional life as a psychologist and your general human interest in climate change.
1: Yeah, so um, I I suppose it started to um, play in my mind a little bit about why it was that we're uh, seemingly not reacting to the increasingly serious um, evidence and news about the impacts of climate change and what the future may have in store for us and our children. and as this news became more and more serious and paying more attention to it, it, it started to really strike me that it was, isn't this interesting? We're, we're hearing all of this incredibly um, serious news and we have all the answers that we need, you know, as a species and as a country to change the behaviors that we know are causing the problem. And yet we're very, very slow to react and respond. And it struck me that there's a psychological, a behavioral and a social component to that.
0: So you're chair of a special interest group. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: So the special interest group uh, for addressing the climate and environmental emergency uh, with the Psychological Society of Ireland is a group of psychologists uh, coming from a variety of backgrounds right across the country. Uh, And our goal is to bring to public awareness the psychological factors that are involved in climate change, both in terms of how it's happening, our inertia, why we're stuck and why we don't seem to move, And its impact, maybe in terms of things like climate anxiety, mental health, etc.
0: So you've been involved in this for a couple of years now. Have you seen any progression? I mean, we can't say we're doing nothing. We're not doing enough. But is there a chink of light? Are you seeing some behavioural changes?
1: I I think we are. um, And surveys would demonstrate that. Um, but it's almost like we're in a race between social change and the climate tipping points that are coming at us at a a ferocious speed. So as you say, the pace of change is nowhere near matching what we need to be doing. And the depth of cuts in emissions, for example, is nowhere near matching what we need to be doing on that big kind of structural societal level. But certainly you, you do see a shift in attitudes and awareness. So people are talking about climate change more. They're more conscious of it. Uh, Surveys by the ESRI and others have demonstrated that the Irish uh, population is very aware of climate change, concerned about it, and open to changing their behaviors when structural changes and supports are put in place. So the SEAI grants for uh, home insulation is a good example of that. If you you put schemes in place and give people the opportunity, they will shift their behaviors in line with pro-environmental behavioral uh,
0: change. And it's interesting that you mentioned policy change because is that part of our psychological reaction? Do we outsource it to others to do for us that, it, you know, it's not up to us. It's up to big industries. It's up to government leaders. It, it's not really up to us and our green bin.
1: Yeah. And there's an interesting dynamic between the individual and the system or a society. And um, as Catherine Hayhoe says, uh, a prominent climate uh, scientist from from Canada um written a wonderful book called Saving Us. Um, should we should we be thinking about systems change or individual change? And she says, yes, um, that we're kind of two sides of the same coin and individuals make up systems. Um, but there's an interesting kind of piece in that when an individual hears about climate change, they often feel overwhelmed. Um, they they kind of quite accurately in a in a way sense, well, you know, my behavioral change is nothing in the in the grand scheme of things. So what difference would it make? Uh, And that kind of reaction, uh, which is common, is part of our inertia. So we all kind of look around and we say, well, no one else is changing, so maybe it's not that serious. And, you know, kind of everyone else feels the same as me, and they're still flying on holidays and eating their burgers and doing all the things that we know are contributing to the problem. And a kind of a social inertia is kind of maintained in that. Whereas when we have big signals from government through policy or economic leverage, uh, through taxation or, you know, kind of creating rules in society essentially that make it harder to do the 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 thing that's bad for the environment and easier to do the thing that's good for the environment, like the home insulation scheme, um, we see people's behavioral change move considerably in a relatively short period of time. Uh, so we see, for example, a huge uptake, uptake in the amount of solar panels that are being put on people's roofs, and that's entirely down to policy direction. So the behavioural inertia, if you want, that um, would have been there is broken by the policy change by government and suddenly you get a behavioural change in another direction.
0: Is fear a big part of what stops us? Even as you were saying sentences like what we're hurtling towards at a ferocious speed, what's ahead for us and our children. I can feel the physical reaction of my chest tightening is it part of a defense mechanism that we just turn over that newspaper page and and go back to everyday life
1: yeah it sure is and you know in the absence of real social support and structure to help us move through that fear into a place of agency um, and kind of courageous action uh, we are left with very few options Uh, you know we feel overwhelmed what can I do about it, etc. All that stuff, and we we retreat and disengage. Uh, so it is frightening, you know, the the damage that's been done and the potential uh, catastrophes that could befall us are frightening. But that doesn't mean that we don't have the capacity to meet those challenges. Uh, we still have uh, a window of opportunity and enormous potential, resource and social cohesion to meet these challenges and shift gears into a more sustainable future. Um, but we have to be frank and honest about the scale of the challenge in order to do that. It simply doesn't further our uh, safety by pretending the challenge isn't as big as it is. So there's a, um, a nice kind of uh, saying that Michael Mann has uh, agency and urgency. Uh, you know, The urgency is about how big the problem is, and the agency is about let's recognize our capacity to meet it. Um, we, we have a high threat environment, but we also have an extremely high level of capacity to meet that threat with ingenuity and uh, collective endeavor and all the resources that we have available to us. Um, but unfortunately, our society needs to move into what might be thought of as emergency mode or a war footing, something of extraordinary scale if we are to, to meet the actual scale of the challenge and we're simply not doing that um, so there's there's a kind of a an inertia and uh, maybe a, an avoidance of the scale of the challenge that we need to move through. And the conference that we're um, delivering on September 15th will be about that challenge, that the kind of psychological, behavioral, social journey that we need to go on while we still have an opportunity to do so.
0: Because it's sort of a balancing act, isn't it, in, in being... Upfront and realistic about what's ahead, but also motivating enough that we can make a real difference. Because I know there's also a sort of a, a school of thought that you know if the ship is going down, we may as well go down partying as such. The way they kept playing the the violins as as the uh, as the ship sank, and that doesn't serve anyone. But it's almost like an excuse to to do nothing that you need that motivation to think that your efforts are going to be worth something.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. In the absence of significant social support, structural support, economic support, you know, better messaging from government, in the absence of those things, we're left with those kinds of reactions. You know, we, we're, it's almost like, well, what do we do? And it's understandable that people feel like throwing their hands up at it and saying, you know, my, my house isn't flooding right now. I'm busy. Um, I need to get to work and this is a problem for someone else or a later date or, you know, when, when it really gets difficult, then I'll pay attention to it. But none of those things, unfortunately, make any sense when you have a cold, hard look at it. Um, we 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 need to move past some of those kind of reactions. They're understandable on a human level. You know, I understand that. I'm, I'm subject to them myself. I'm not preaching about it. Um, but we do need to move past it.
0: And I know you've made some personal changes in your life um, with the red meat you consume, the way you travel. I know you've said no to certain um, events taking place that would involve you taking a flight. You've you've turned them down. Your family holidays now involve taking a ferry or, or a train. And that came to my mind when you said preaching. Do you come up against people, does that rub people the wrong way? Are they motivated by seeing you doing the same or do they get defensive?
1: A bit of both. And I think it depends on where people are at and it depends on the relationship and it depends on all sorts of things. But I'm, I'm very aware that we've all been socialized and habituated into ways of living in relation to the natural world um, such that we're all contributing to the problem of climate change. And I have contributed to the problem of climate change my whole life. And continue to do so despite trying to make some uh, personal changes. Um, I, I think changing on a personal level has a really important social function in that if we are to get to that idea of a social tipping point uh, where you know enough people start saying we have to change and then the whole group comes along uh, with that, um, people making personal changes are important in that regard. But I also think we need to be extremely kind and understanding and compassionate to each other that this has to be a journey that we go on together the idea of polarizing things and politicizing and and divisive uh, debates around the journey that we need to make is extremely hampering in that journey it doesn't facilitate anyone uh, so i think we need to be just very understanding about where we how we've gotten here and where we find ourselves you know it's almost like we happen to be the generation that's been tapped on the shoulder um, and said, you guys are the last ones, I'm sorry. Um, We didn't ask for it. Um, We just happened to be born at a period of time when this is the generation that has the last real chance to make a huge, significant change to avoid the worst of what could happen. And that just is. Um, So rather than judging or preaching or being critical of each other about it, let's just get on with it you know let's let's lean into courage and bravery and and solidarity and togetherness and find a way through
0: but we have gone through some massive changes in society over the last few years the smoking ban for one was a, a massive change in behavior um as was the pandemic and and that came to mind when you were talking about polarizing and politicizing and we did make massive change it came with huge amounts of leadership, huge amounts of information, but it did really divide people and it brought up a lot of anger. Um, and I, I think in some ways we're, we're still reeling from that a little bit. Is that a natural human reaction that we start to to judge each other and take sides and that all that, those conspiracy theories start getting shared around? Is that a very normal part of our psychological reaction to something as monumental as this?
1: Yeah, it would seem to be. Um, so if you look back at, at many of the social changes we've gone through, whether it's uh, women's voting rights or, you know, the workers' rights for weekends to child labour laws, to uh, you know, abolishing slavery, to equal rights for marriage, to the smoking ban, pretty much everything like that has been hard fought and hard won. You know, these things don't come about easily, and there's often a tumultuous period of time before the period of change, where things like protest uh, that can get kind of ugly um, happen. And that just seems to be part of the journey. I wish it wasn't. (laughs) You know, I wish it could be uh, a more simple thing where where politicians and, and people in authority simply accepted the science and behaved morally and honorably in relation to that. But that's not how the world works. Um, So I I think there is a a rocky journey sometimes, but despite that, the journey is worth it because the alternative, if we turn away from that journey, if we keep going the way we're going, is much, much worse. It's unfathomably worse. And it's actually hard, I think, for people to get their heads around uh, the level of damage and seriousness of what's occurring. Um, it's understandable that people are fearful of things that become divisive and protest and stuff like that a lot of people get very uncomfortable i get very uncomfortable around it we're only human um but when when that's put uh, beside what happens to our society and our planet and our environment um if with unchecked kind of climate change uh it pales in insignificance it's a small price to pay
0: I I think we're getting flavours of what's ahead with the extreme weather and the the, the fires worldwide and the displacement. Um, We are getting tasters and indicators of of the inequality that is to come and the suffering that is to come. So it's not a simple task. Um, Tell me a little bit about the conference that you have coming up on September 15th.
1: So we're we're delighted to have some really fantastic speakers uh, who are joining us and and a huge thanks to um, Pierce Library in Dublin City who are giving us their venue. That's uh, greatly welcomed Um, and the Psychological Society of Ireland for supporting uh, the conference. Uh, We have some amazing speakers. Uh, Our keynote is Saif O'Neill, who you'll know is a a climate activist, um, a lecturer and scholar in, in climate change. Uh, we're hosted by Duncan Stewart of Eco and um, We have some really excellent speakers in the realm of psychological and social, including Caroline Hickman, who was lead author on a famous paper uh, looking at climate anxiety across 10 different countries uh, amongst young people that was published a couple of years back. Um, Claire Kelly, who's an associate professor in the Trinity School of Neuroscience, uh, talking about how we create stories for ourselves and the, the stories we tell and how we need a new version of ourselves to lead ourselves out of the current crisis. Uh, Dr. Aaron Thierry, who's a, um, an environmental scientist from uh, the University of Cardiff, uh, who's a highly prominent uh, thinker in terms of the process of social change and how we communicate it by climate change. Um, and Lisa Fingleton, who's a climate activist and artist and filmmaker, Uh, um, who has done some really amazing work with, for example, the OPW um, and the Ploughing Championship, uh, looking at uh, engaging rural communities uh, around the links between climate, art uh, and social progress and change. Uh, So an extraordinarily interesting lineup of speakers. Uh, John Gibbons as well, prominent uh, environmental journalist who I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, and I hope I haven't left anyone out there. I may have.
0: <laughs> and who are you hoping will come to this? Are you hoping to preach to the converted or to convert?
1: Uh, it's a broad audience. Um, I guess it will be made up uh, largely by psychologists and um, people with an interest in climate change, but it's open to anyone. Uh, so we're hoping to, as part of our goal with the Special Interest Group is to bring knowledge of this uh, to a wide audience. We're also going to record it and have it available online after the event uh, so that we can kind of reach a a broader audience. Um, And there will be some journalists uh, present, so hopefully they'll do a little bit of uh, highlighting of some of the themes and topics that are, are raised here. But I think even more importantly than all of that, is creating spaces where people can talk and think together about the nature of this crisis. Um, As you're aware, it kind of comes at us in little sound bites that terrify us for a few moments, and then our minds move on to whatever else we're working on that day or involved in that day. And it's hard to create space and time to think through things and deepen our understanding and deepen the complexity of thought. And this, because it's such a complex issue, with many different roots and many different facets and you know, historical and cultural and economic and political and social. There's, there's so many angles on, on the topic of climate change. Having a space to honour the complexity of that is really useful.
0: Well, people can find out more at psychologicalsociety.ie and tickets are available on Eventbrite. Just search for A New Climate for Psychology. Dr. Owen Gallivan, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much, Claire. Coming up after the break, political journalist Aoife Moore on the trolls who discredited her work, made her life hell, and inspired her to record a podcast series. Alive and kicking on News Talk. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking. Now, my next guest, Eva Moore, is a very accomplished person, a journalist. Her book, The Long Game, has just been published this week and she's made several documentaries for RTE. She began to receive online abuse, also known as trolling, a number of years ago and has recently released a podcast series called Trolled. She joins me on the line now. Aoife, you're very welcome.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: So, why did you want to make this podcast series?
2: Um, I had been approached by a number of podcasts, by co- podcast companies before about doing my own podcast, and nothing ever really felt right. It didn't really feel like me. And I always said if I was going to do something, I wanted to do it on a subject that it was important to me. And it was actually Cassie Delaney who owns Outcaster, the podcast company. She had had this idea about doing a podcast about online life about trolling about online bullying and she wanted me defronted because I had been very open have always been very open about the abuse I received online and she felt that it would give the podcast that kind of genuine quality and I was kind of reticent about it at the start because I really don't want to be known as the girl who was trolled Uh, I don't want that to be what I'm known for, I took my journalism very seriously. But the reason I had always been open and upfront about the sholing is because I don't want it to be acceptable or the norm or for younger female journalists to think they should just have to accept this. And when I started looking into it then, there really hadn't been a podcast dedicated to online bullying and sholing in this way. And it encompasses so many different subjects. I mean, it's not just, you know, the children of journalists. We have also looked at hate crime, you know, hate speech, you know, uh, image-based sexual abuse. It really runs the gamut um, from bullying at school and then, you know, up until the very worst circumstances, which is the episode we had with Jackie Fox. So I think maybe she thought I had a lot of experience in it. But when she suggested it, it sounded like something I would be very passionate about so that's why we decided to do it together
0: and you do go into great detail about your personal experience and for me as a listener it was a real eye opener because we all hear about it and you know i would have always have thought it was terrible and nobody should have to go through it mm-hmm. but you really spoke a lot about the personal and psychological impact that it had on you which which was which was massive
2: yeah and when it's happening at the time when you're really in the thick of it you probably you don't notice it as much and you don't realize how bad it is and I think maybe that's the reason I was able to do the podcast now is that you know I've come through it and I'm kind of at the other side now and I, I actually say this in the podcast but I used to be unable to talk about the trolling the first time I went to the Garda station I could barely speak because I was crying so hard um and now you know I can talk about it and talk about the effect it had on me and my personal relationships and my mental health but I probably couldn't have done that maybe even a year ago so I the first episode is just my story because we wanted to give people the context of why we're doing this and kind of my experience and even though I thought I was over it and I had a certain amount of closure I still got quite obsessed talking about it um because I suppose you don't really realize how bad it is until you're explaining it to an outsider and even my friends some of my best friends who were aware of what was happening were still shocked hearing it you know in that kind of 10-15 minute bite. because when you do say it all out loud it is horrendous and I'm not at all ashamed to say that I'm really proud of myself um for getting through it because I think you know a lot of people would have just gave up or given and I did really think about giving in Uh, a lot of the times when it came to the job. I kind of thought I never really thought about giving up journalism but I did give up thinking about you know being a public journalist, being on TV, being on the radio, being on social media because it just the bullying was just incessant.
0: And you didn't just have sort of Personal attacks, you had your professionalism questioned, you'd rumors started about yourself, Mm -hmm. your parents were pulled into things, you had sexual assault threats, death threats. And you talk about every time you opened your phone, there would just be more negativity blasting you so much. So your stress response was so heightened that a doctor suggested anti anxiety medication for a certain time just to let everything settle down and you don't often hear that you know and I think it was really brilliant of you to share that because that's what you need to hear is what it what the impact really is and I know that was one of the things you wanted to put out there as opposed to being a victim and and putting yourself out there as a victim, but you were a victim of trolling.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, at the start, I was really like, I don't know if it's a really Irish thing or whatever, but I was really against going on anti-anxiety medication. I felt like a failure. I felt like a big baby. Why can't I just get over this? Why am I so panicked? Why am I so stressed? And the funny thing was, I remember explaining what was happening to the doctor and after after speaking for about 10 minutes of me just talking nonstop, he said, I would have recommended anxiety medication if you hadn't stopped after two minutes of talking. <laughs> but so much had happened. And as you said, it was death threats. It was rape threats. It was threats of violence. It was emails. It was DMs, um, gossip forums, uh, rumors that I had slept with Mari, journalists that I had slept with my politicians, that I was a reason for people's divorces, that I was a reason for people's relationships breaking down. And you become incredibly paranoid. I, at one point, was looking at other journalists at press conferences thinking, is it you? Is it you? Um, Do you think I deserve this? You start, your life gets very small and you get very paranoid And when I look back now, I'm like, of course, that's the sort of person who should be on medication. (laughs) You know, if you're looking at people who you work with day to day and thinking, are you, you know, planning or, you know, behind my back or whatever, of course, you should be on some medication. So, yeah, it's something I did against, not against my will, but I was very reticent about it. I was very Irish about it at the start. And now the way I look at it is that if I had diabetes or any other actually I would be taking medication too so it was they said that you know your flight or fight receptor I was just in constant flight just constant panic and so that's why I got put on it but yeah it was at the time to be honest like I didn't even think twice about telling people it was one of those things I just said it on the podcast and then afterwards I was like "Hmm, should I have said that but no I don't regret it at all and like the thing is The funny thing is, even now when people troll me, the thing they always say is like, oh, here she goes again, playing the victim. As if that's somehow a negative or I should be ashamed. I mean, if people are threatening to kill you every other day because of the job you do, I think it's fair enough to feel like you've been (laughs) victimised.
0: Yeah, I do too. And I thought it was really sad when you spoke about things that had taken from you, like you have a a book coming out um, and when you signed that book deal, it was tainted because you felt there were people who would write fake reviews on Amazon mm-hmm. to tear you down. And it's not just you, you speak to other influencers. And that, again, was a big eye opener to me. I think we're all conscious of of public figures and we all turn on the TV, turn on the radio and say, oh, I hate that one mm. or I can't stand this one. And And, you know, that is fair enough. People are entitled to that sort of opinion. But it goes deeper. I I was quite taken aback by the venom. Some of the influencers you spoke about had people in their personal circle sharing personal information about them Mm -hmm. on forums. About their children. There were people checking some of the girls out on walks and then going back to report on it. So the next time they went on their morning walk, they felt really paranoid who's watching. And, you know, do they like me? Do they not like me? I mean, that's a real envision of, of people's personal spaces. There's such venom in it. What did you discover about this phenomenon of trolling? Like, is it something new that's come with social media and influencing or is it around since people gathered in town squares <laughs> to watch someone else be beheaded?
2: I, the thing that surprised me most was the visceral reaction people have to influencers. I find like, out of everyone we interviewed, out of all the episodes we do, Influencers elicit the least sympathy and I have no idea why because in my view they are the most normal people. They are not celebrities, they are not journalists, they are not professional athletes, they are quote-unquote normal girls who have received a wee bit of fame whether it be makeup or clothing or, or whatever it is. And I think it's something to do with the localness of an influencer that they're just like me. And that, for some reason, really bothers people. And I think it comes from jealousy and insecurity. I think it comes from why her and why not me? And a lot of it is to do with people's own insecurities. So throughout the podcast, me and Cassie actually found a number of people who are trolls. Um, People are not as smart as they think they are when it comes to trolling. So we were able to track down a number of anonymous accounts. Now, we didn't do anything. But we looked into these girls' lives. And these are not losers sitting in their mommy's back bedrooms with no life no job and no boyfriend these are normal girls who like you work in shops and you sit beside them on the bus and they might be your cousin but a lot of them either you know this is just a sweeping generalization a lot of them the, a lot of the fat shaming that we saw or body shaming that we saw were from girls who were also in bigger bodies there was a lot of girls who worked in the beauty industry there seemed to be this real obsession with people in bigger bodies. The worst trolling we saw was for girls in bigger bodies and people who had children, women who had children. It seems to be once an influencer has a child, she becomes, it's, it's a free for all. And what I find most odd, now I don't have children, but from what I hear, it's a pretty isolating and difficult experience. And I find it so depressing that other women, instead of saying, God, that's really hard. And I've been there and I've seen how hard that is. They tear women apart about their choices to do with mothering and what their children are like and like say the most awful things. Like she obviously hates her children. She hates herself because she's fat. Like stuff that you would never say out loud, and I never say to the person's face. And I think that's why the episode we have with Dr. Nicola Fox Hamilton, who's a cyber psychologist is so interesting because she goes into the psychology of why people do this, why people say things on the internet that they would never say in real life. But a lot of it does come down to insecurity and jealousy. And I think that definitely from the, not necessarily with people like me, but when it comes to the trolling of influencers, I am 99% sure in my own theory anyway, that a lot of it is insecurity and jealousy.
0: And do men and women troll differently if we're going to just do that binary gender?
2: They do. So um, it's a lot to do with our place and the world. So women are programmed by society to see all our women as competition. So the type of trolling that, say, I would get from women is very different from what I get from men. So when I get trolled by men, just using me as the example, it'll be about my uh, background, that I'm a bad journalist because I am biased against one political party because of where I'm from, that I am stupid, that I use my looks um, to get where I am uh, in journalism, all those types of things. But with women, it's a lot more personalized. It's that I love myself, that I sleep with men to get where I am. You know, I looked into a number of gossip forums and they talk about very successful women on Irish TV and they say and uh, the women on these forums are obsessed with the thought that this woman might have slept with someone to get where she is when it comes to a very successful business woman in Ireland they say that it's, there's men behind them paying all this money for the business it's with men, it is very much about my, you know, my looks and whether I'm stupid or not. And I only got there because I'm a woman. Whereas with the woman, they're obsessed with my personal life. It's very, very personalized unless unless about my actual brains or journalism. And what's
0: your response to what comes up constantly that you or an influencer or anyone in the public eye puts themselves up for this. It was fair game. It's just so tired, isn't it?
2: Like, I, I have been over this a million times. So the thing that people will often say when it comes to trolling influencers is that influencers need to be held to account. First of all, I don't know who made the general public, the police, holding them we account for what. But also... Even with me, if you don't like my journalism and you think my analysis of politics is wrong, that's absolutely fine. That's the criticism I signed up for. Like, as a journalist, I sign up for that criticism. I do not sign up for people to say that I sleep with politicians for stories and that I come from a terrible family and that I deserve rape threats and and death threats. So saying to someone that you should expect death threats because of the job that they're in, I honestly cannot imagine that there's anyone else in their life they would ever say that day and it's a nonsense as well because the most hypocritical thing about it is people will say well yeah you are just all out there seeking validation but if you're trolling someone publicly online you're also seeking validation for your opinion we're all seeking validation that's part of the human condition so I think it's a nonsense and I don't think people believe it because if that was the case that people really believed that people deserved it, they would not use anonymous accounts. They would not use use fake names. They would use their own account and their own name to say these awful things to people. But they know that it's wrong because if we all deserved it, you would be able to say it out and proud. But it's not because if someone says to me with their own profile and their own picture, I wholeheartedly disagree with that piece you wrote about the election, Aoife. That's absolutely fine. But the person who's threatening to rape me is not using their own name. And the people spreading the rumors about me are not using their own name. So I asked people constantly when we were making the podcast if you have ever trolled anyone, please come on my podcast. I didn't want to lecture people, I want to criticize people. I just want to ask why. I just want to ask what's happening in your life. How did you get into it? What had happened? And we could not get one person to come forward. And to me, that was actually a nice bit of closure. Because I thought, if those people thought they were really justified in what they were saying about me, they would come and and speak to me. And I offered anonymity. I said, you can have your Zoom camera off. We'll change your name. We'll change your voice. And they still wouldn't do it. And for me, that's how you know that they're, at the end of the day, they're just bullies because all bullies are cowards.
0: Yeah, I mean, it does fascinate me what goes on. I mean, do you think people forget what it is they're doing? And I mean, even as I'm saying that, it sounds like a ridiculous defense. I'm not trying to defend them.
2: Nicola Fox Hamilton talks about this, the cyber psychologist. There is a difference online and offline. People do feel emboldened to say things online that they would never say in real life. And it's because you can't see the person's reaction. You can, you know, if you say something rude or you're a bit short with someone, you can see in their face that they don't like it. And it's a human condition to react to that. But if you can't see any reaction, you are not going to act the way you normally are. And with a lot of trolling, you get credence and kudos for being horrible. And other people pile in. It's a mob mentality. It's like I say on the podcast, people say, oh, I can't believe that people used to go to public hangings not that long ago, or they still doing some parts of the Middle East? I can, because it's the same mentality. When you see a pylon on Twitter of thousands and thousands and thousands of people just ripping one person apart for whatever it is that they have done, it's the same thing, because people who may never have said anything to this person in real life feel emboldened that they can do it on the internet, and they feel safety in numbers that if they see other people doing it, they're going to start doing it too. So I think it's the second episode that we have Nickel Fox Hamden, but it's definitely one of my favorites because there's just so much, so many layers to it. And the thing is the trolls that have been unmasked in the, in the media, you know, even that lady in England who had trolled Madeline McCann's parents for years and years, like she went to church every Sunday and had two sons, you know, these are not, and that's what I really wanted to get across in the podcast. I really want to get away from this notion that it's, this loser who never leaves their house and you know has nothing going for them, the show people because it's usually not it's very much so people that you know I would not be surprised if you know any of us find that one of our friends or someone in our outside circle. Had done something like this before because it's so common.
0: Wow, it's crazy to think you can't even trust the people in your inner circle. Well, we'll have to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll take a look at the area of online abuse and Aoife, your heart stopping interview with Jackie Fox, who, following the death of her daughter Nicole, campaigned to have the laws around online abuse changed. Alive and kicking. On News Talk, you're welcome back to Alive and Kicking with me, Claire McKenna, and I'm joined by journalist, author, and documentary maker Eva Moore about her podcast series Trolled. You interview Jackie Fox mm-hmm. about Coco's Law. I interviewed Jackie when I was working on Ireland AM, and it's something that will stay with me forever. And I I listened to her interview again. So her daughter Nicole died by suicide after years of online bullying and in-person abuse. But at the time of Nicole's death, it wasn't a criminal offence. She has changed that. What law do we have in place now?
2: Yeah, so before Coco's Law, the harassment law was very narrow. So I don't think it had been changed since the 1960s and just did not envision a world with the internet. So with Coco's Law, the last time I checked, more than 130 people have been charged under the law and it brings harassment legislation in uh to a more like internet savvy space and also the sharing of intimate images without consent uh now known as image-based sexual abuse or revenge porn is also against the law because we know that what happened to nicole is that her face was photoshopped onto a pornographic image and sent around whatsapps in limerick where they lived at the time and that wasn't against the law and that, Jackie says on the podcast, was really the last straw for Nicole in that instance. So that is not against the law as well.
0: And you talk a lot about behavioural change. I mean, apart from legal change, that's really was one of your motivations if it stopped one person or made them think twice because mm-hmm. they can now see the person's face or at least hear their their proper reaction. Mm-hmm. And I listened to a podcast recently by... Dr. Joe Dispenza and he deals a lot in emotions and the power of our thoughts and he was talking about that fight or flight response Mm and how modern day life particularly in the western world has everybody quite heightened and stressed because we're always on Mm. and he said the emotions of that are jealousy, anger, rage, aggression Mm. and when you see what goes on online you just wonder is it in part a symptom of the modern age?
2: I mean, I think every, like, if you look at like an industrial revolution when it comes to the internet or digital revolution, every revolution is going to have some sort of behavioural change that that it'll take a while for the ripple effect to stop. But I just, I do sometimes worry that there has been a serious lack of empathy. But Dr. Nicola Fox Hamilton says that you can actually track the discourse online getting more hateful and more pointed since the 2016 election of Donald Trump that's not my opinion that is data-based that behavior online has gotten worse and the way she described it to us it is that if the most powerful people in the world are treating people with respect it moves the Overton window it moves what is seen as then acceptable because if the most powerful people in the world are doing it it, why should the man in the street have to be any different? So that is why, no matter who, whether you think anything of government or whatever your political views are, whoever is at the top sets the standard and then it trickles down that if that person is not work to that standard, it trickles down and data now shows us that throughout the first election of Donald Trump, the internet has become a more hateful place. And what I find most interesting is as the internet gets more hateful, or say social media gets more hateful, more and more people are leaving social media. So that shows you that it's not a space that people want to be. Since Elon Musk has taken over X, people continue to leave X because they are looking for spaces that are more friendly. No one wants to sit and scroll all day and look at constant negativity. And that's the thing I really worry about when it comes to the gossip forums, is even if you are a person who doesn't, comment on them because on and reads them I don't think anyone should be taking in that much horrible negative commentary about our people because it surely must seep into your brain as well and we did a lot of research for the podcast where we would sit on these gossip forums and read it and you would just come away from it feeling terrible terrible about yourself and terrible about the state of the world and I it's just not a good use of your time for your health or anybody else
0: yeah. And I'm also fascinated by our negativity bias that why are we less likely to say something positive? Like I might listen to you talking on Louise McSherry's podcast, you know, think you're both great, but I, I don't take the time to send that message and say that. Why are we more inclined, not me now, but to send something hateful? I think we should try it's, and spread it a works, bit more it works, love out it there. It works the
2: other way too. So the way the negativity bias works that if someone tells you if a hundred people tell you a nice thing and one person tells you a negative thing, you only really focus on the negative thing. And the way it was described as me is, is um, it's like a evolutionary thing. So if you saw a hundred sheep, you wouldn't be too worried about it. But it's when you saw the tiger, you would start running. So it's the danger. It, that's, how it, that's how it works in your brain is that the negativity is the danger. Now, you don't feel it as danger. It's probably subconscious, but that's where it comes from. So, yeah, we're not as complicated as we think we are.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, while I have the opportunity, I'm really glad you didn't let them tear you down. I get the feeling you're only getting going. I highly recommend the podcast, which is on Outcaster. Go to io. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank
2: you. Thanks for having me.
0: So that's it for alive and kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Eva Breen, to Simon Keane, and to Hugo de Silva Scott, who was on sound. And thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and kicking on News Talk.